Hello, uh, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, in this episode, I'll be beginning a little series uh, where we'll be looking at some of the the, the quote-unquote revisions that Lovecraft worked on from around 1928 to 1930. Um, so this is like uh, an extension of the previous series we've been working on where we looked at stories he wrote in the same period of time. So we looked at her shadow over Innsmouth, at the Mountains of Madness, and Whisper in Darkness. And uh, now we're going to take a look at a handful of, of revisions. I, I think there's four that we're going to look at. It'll probably be five episodes because one of these is The Mound, which is a really long episode uh, or a really long story. And it might take a couple episodes to look at. Uh, I'll kind of deal with these the way I dealt with the other revisions. Maybe not going quite in the detail I did in the other episodes, but, you know, giving us, you know, acknowledging these stories as part of Lovecraft's work. Um, to the degree they are, I think there's some, you know, discussion to be had about how much each of these stories has the touch of Lovecraft and how much he really was just a true reviser or, you know, editor in some cases. Um, not an editor in terms of publishing it, but an editor, like a copy editor type of person. Um, so... Anyways, The Curse of Yig, that's the story we're going to look at here. In fact, much of this series is going to involve three stories that he basically ghost-wrote for Zelia Bishop. So, you know, uh, despite what I just said, the bulk of what we're going to look at in this, this kind of mini-series of episodes, the next handful of episodes, are stories he essentially wrote um, uh, for Zelia Bishop. Um, and there's the three. There's The Curse of Yeg, The Mound, and Medusa's Coil. And, and they're all very different stories. They're all, I think, I, what's interesting about these stories is that they're geographically quite vast. They, they take Lovecraft or they allow Lovecraft to explore uh, areas that he doesn't normally write about, like the American Southwest, uh, the American South in Medusa's Coil. And I think that's, as I said before in this series, I think one of the contributions of the revisions is not necessarily that Lovecraft is doing a lot different in these stories that he does in the stories that he wrote under his name or published under his name, but revisions, the revisions and the, the ghostwriting jobs he did get him, give him an opportunity to explore different ge geographies and different themes and different mythologies. I think this is a really great example of him doing that. Um, this this first story, I mean, the, the Curse of Yig. But I think all the Zelia Bishop revisions allow Lovecraft to really explore themes that, you know, are not really, you know, things he normally would, or at least regions and geographies he wouldn't normally look at. Um, so there, I guess there's some debate about how much the Curse of Yig is, is Lovecraft's. August Derleth said it's about 75. Or I think Lovecraft wrote in a letter to August Derleth, sorry, that um, it's about 75% his own. You know, Lovecraft is often modest in his letters, so he might assume it might be even a little bit more than that. The Mound certainly is almost entirely his work. So, I mean, that's enough to basically say this is a H.P. Lovecraft work under Zelia Bishop's name. Um, it was written in, in 1928. <clears throat> It was published in November 1929 of Weird Tales. So it was published not long after uh, it was was written. Um, so it's it really is a great story, though. I really do think that people should read this story if they're Lovecraft fans. And if you haven't gotten to the revisions yet, this is one I would, I would almost encourage starting with. Uh, I think a lot of the revisions we've been looking at up to now are either like loosely his. 
I mean, I guess Under the Pyramids is one definitely you'd want to look at. But some of these others maybe aren't so important. But this one definitely feels like a Lovecraft story. Um, really in almost every way. It's, it's really great. It just doesn't have the New England setting. But everything else about it is very, very much a Lovecraft story. Um, especially in the way we start with a character who's like an ethnologist. It, it almost, in that sense, it's, it, it makes me think of like the Whisper in Darkness where we have a... Our main narrator character is just a just an ethnologist trying to dig up stories about something, and he finds something quite horrible. It also has the nested narratives that we've seen in stories like uh, yeah, the Mountains of Madness has that. Uh, the Call of Cthulhu, of course, has is maybe the best example of Lovecraft dealing with this kind of nested narrative. Uh, this one has it as well. Um, but anyways, let's just jump in and talk about this a little bit. I, I don't want to belabor this story, but I do think it's really, really great. I think it's um, a wonderful story. I have a lot of marginal notes on this, this particular story. So it's set in 1925, where we have an ethnographer, our, our narrator, a folklorist, I, maybe is a better word for it, a folklorist who goes to Oklahoma Um which I don't know if that is, it's kind of the Midwest, right? It doesn't really maybe count as the Southwest, but maybe in 1925, it kind of fits more. It, it's, it's that part. I mean, from Lovecraft's point of view, it's all sort of the West, right? Um, but this and the mound, both set in Oklahoma. Um, of course, the mound has a much broader geography, but uh, this one, you know, it's an interesting place, right? This is part of old old mexico right it was well i guess oklahoma would have been part of the louisiana purchase right but it's in that area it's in that area that was more recently conquered and subdued by american empire in the west there's a lot actually suggested here about empire and competing empires um and, and history is <clears throat> actually a pretty good story for exploring the history of of america i i think um, we got suggestions here of the oil boom and of the, the expansion of America. That's such a big part of this story and the backdrop of it all. Well, anyways, um, so our narrator goes to Oklahoma basically searching for folklore about snake lore, uh, particularly about this god Yig. So um, now the big question that our ethnographer seems to have is, does this connect to to Quetzalcoatl, right? So what connection does this have with Native American traditions or is it a separate god, right? So um, here's something uh, that's written about this. But it's, it's Lovecraft's very careful. It's not like an Indian legend. It's not like a white legend imposed on, like that brought, that's brought in. It, it seems to have more primordial roots. And, and I think reading this alongside a story like uh, um, Juan Romero um, might be interesting because there's like geographical connections i guess to the in the in location of that of both stories but also in the connection this idea that native american legends aren't themselves indigenous to america they're part of a deeper like deeper tendrils of, of traditions around the world uh so he writes here neither indian nor white men would discuss the snake god legends i'd come to trace the oil boom newcomers of course do nothing of such matters and the red men and the old pioneers were plainly frightened when I spoke of them, end quote. So the important point there is like it's not just Indian legends. It's something that that 
the pioneers, not the oil people who came more recently, but the original pioneers to this region had believed, right? Now, of course, the Indians of Oklahoma are a mixed group at this point because many of them are the people who are shoved out of, of the eastern part of the United States during like the Trail of Tears, right? The Indian removal movement of the 1830s and 1840s. But anyways, he, you know, people are really scared of this because obviously it's, it's got some roots in reality in Lovecraft's universe. Um, but anyways, he ends up meeting this guy, uh, Dr. McNeil, who runs an asylum. And he's kind of sent there by, by people who say, like, there's something there that you might want to know. Right. But, you know, he he's got a bunch of ideas about this mythology that he's really trying to prove and to put into writing uh, about the origins of this Yig myth. Right. Now, the Yig mythology, there's not a whole lot here in the story. It's not a particularly long story, but there's not a whole lot here that details what this Yig mythology is. But the heart of it is if you kill a snake, Yig will is the father of snakes and Yig will punish you. Uh, by turning you into some kind of snake. That, that's the, the heart of the mythology that's kind of passed around. But what our narrator is interested in is, is, does this sort of come from the, or is this connected in some way to Aztec mythology, right? Because, of course, there are cultural connections between the American Southwest and Mexico, right? The corn culture, some of the gods seem to be passed on, some of the architectural techniques. Some people think like the mound cultures of, of, of North America, you know, present day United States, are tied to some of the architectural techniques of, of the Aztecs and, and the Mexican traditions, right? So anyways, he, he writes here, I've always felt from well-defined over, undertones, undertones, of legend and archaeology that great Quetzalcoatla, benign snake god of the Mexicans, had an older and darker prototype. And during recent months, I had well nigh proved in a series of researchers stretching from Guatemala to the Oklahoma Plains. But everything was tantalizing and incomplete, for above the border, the cult of the snake was hedged about by fear and fugitiveness. So, you know, he's saying he can't get people to really comment. He can't get witnesses to really talk about this because they're kind of freaked out by this. So anyways, he's kind of led to see this guy, Dr. McNeil, who runs this asylum. And apparently he has some news about it, right? So he f tracks down this Dr. McNeil. And Dr. McNeil says, oh, I know what you're doing. I I've read your work. Um, and he says, right, I think there's something more going on here. He says, I know of many of our Oklahoma ethnologists have tried to connect it with Quetzalcoatl, but I don't think any of them are tracing her media steps so well. You've done a remarkable job for a man as young as you are, and we can certainly deserve all the data we can give you, end quote. So he's interesting to, to help kind of detail this, this mythology as best he can. Um, so anyways, then he says like, well, actually, I know I, I have this, I have this case. I have this exhibit, if you will, that suggests some connection to this Yig mythology. He says, first, though, I don't think this is anything real. This is all supernatural. I don't believe in that. Um, but I still have this really sad story that you might find interesting. So anyways, he takes him to the asylum. He takes our narrator, Dr. McNeil, this guy, takes our narrator to the asylum and shows him this. Essentially, it's a creature, right? It's like, like a mutant, like someone who, like major birth defects, uh, but has remained alive, like a freak, right? 
um, of, of some sort. I guess that's what they would call it back in those days. It's not the politically correct term, I know, but that's sort of how Mr. McNeil seems to be handling this. Um, he's in this really grotesque place, so this really smelly, stinky place, blocked away. Um, anyways, we get the description of it. Um, the moving object was almost of human size and almost utterly devoid of clothing. It was absolutely hairless and its tawny looking back seems subtly swackamous in the dim ghoulish light. Around its shoulders, it was rather speckled and brownish and his head was curiously flat. As it looked up to hiss at me, I saw that its beady little black eyes were damnly anthropoid, but I cannot bear to study them long. They fastened themselves on me with a horrible persistence so that I closed the panel graspingly and left the creature to wiggle about unseen in its matted straw and spectral twilight. I must have reeled a bit, for I saw that the doctor was gently holding my arm and guiding me away. End quote. So that's the that's what he has in his his asylum that he's been caring for in, in some way. Um, now, after this, we get a little bit of the background on the Yig myth, as it's understood by our narrator, understood by McNeil, and understood by the people of this region, Indians and old pioneers, right? Not the newcomers so much. So um, it does seem to have maybe some connection to Quetzalcoatl, perhaps, but maybe other gods as well. Um, the key thing is that all serpents, all snakes are its children. That's one of its key features. Quote, he was not wholly evil and was usually quite well disposed towards those who gave proper respect to him and his children, the serpents. But in the autumn, he became abnormally ravenous and had to be driven away by means of suitable rites, end quote. So there's a couple of things here. One is this relationship to the children, this desire to protect the children. And this other is this connection to the, the season of autumn. Um, but his key feature was this devotion to his, his children, right? Now, it's, there's some really interesting em dynamics in this story about empire, it seems to me. Um, you know, Lovecraft writes, quote, In the old days on the Indian territory, the doctor went on, there were not quite so much secrecy about Yig. The Plains Indians, less cautious than the desert nomads and Pueblos, talked quite freely of their legends and autumn ceremonies with the first Indian agents and let considerable, uh, considerable of the lore spread throughout the neighboring regions of the white settlements. The great fear came in the land rush of 89 when some extraordinary incidents had been rumored, end quote. So when white people started to move into this region, right, then we get these stories of, of Yig reemerging, which of course lends credence to its real, the reality of, these, of this mythology because it's the white people come in, presumably not as respectful of Yig, killing snakes. They're pioneers, right? So they clear the land, kill off the local animals to clear, make room for their forest, right? Make it safe for them. And, and so induce the wrath of, of Yig, something the Indians apparently knew better, knew better than to do. Um, so anyways, now McNeil, after kind of going over some of what he knows about the Yig mythology, gets to the real story that he's trying to tell. Um, basically, there's this new married couple. So he's going back a few years, it's back to 1889. Um, so it's, it's back like 35 years, 36 years. And we have these two, this like young couple of settlers, Walker and Audrey. It's a man and a woman, right? Um, and they they come from like the Ozarks or something to the to Oklahoma to to settle, 
And the story, much of the, actually much of the Curse of Yeg just deals with the experiences of these two people. It's all flashback, right? It's McNeil's relating of their story to our narrator. So that's how we end up with this kind of nested narrative here. Um, no pun intended, of course. Nest is playing an important role in the story, being as, uh, you know, snakes. Snakes nest, right? Um, so... Anyways, I won't go into all the details of their of their story. Uh, it is the heart of the uh, it is the heart of the tale, though. But um, basically, they go there, and now Walker knows the story of Yeg and is a little bit fearful of it. He's also very fearful of snakes. He's really terrified of snakes. Um, and they move to the west. They start to clear, you know, clear the land. You know, they they're, they're in this frontier. They're pioneers. I actually think this is during their journey to there. They don't quite get to their homestead yet. They're still journeying there and they're camped one night and Audrey finds the this this nest of snakes. Quote, Audrey examining the rocks near the wagon, meanwhile, noticed the singular sniffing on the part of a feeble old dog. Seizing a rifle, she followed his lead and presently thanked her stars that she had forestalled Walker in her discovery. For there, snugly nested in the gap between two boulders was a sight it would have done him no good to see. Visible only as one convoluted expanse, but perhaps comprising as many as three or four separate units, was a mass of lazy wriggling, which could not be other than the brood of newborn rattlesnakes. End quote. A really great description there, because if you've seen snakes or seen pictures of snakes, right, you know, you can't really know how many are there. They're just kind of a, a group together, sliming, slithering together. So Audrey goes ahead and kills the nest. She, she slaughters the nest, right? She later on tells Walker this, and, and Walker freaks out about this, saying, like, what have you done? You, you've sort of killed us because Yig will come and get us. Uh, he says, God sakes, Aud, why did you go do that? Hadn't you heard all the things I've been telling you about the snake devil Yig? You ought to told me, and we'd have moved on. Don't you know they got... They that they's a devil god when they get you if you hurt his children. What do you think the Indians all dance and beat their drums in the fall about? This land's under a curse, I tell you. Nigh every soul we have talked to since we come in says the same. Yig rules here. And he's come out every fall to get his victims and turn them into snakes. Why all they won't none of them Indians across the canyon kill a snake for love nor money. So that's his, he, he knows the story of VA. He's heard about it. He's worried about this, right? Um, and he's like, you know, you've doomed us. You've killed us, right? But nothing happens right away. Nothing happens right away. Instead, we get a few pages where we get the description of, the actually, you know, what else happens to them. And actually what they do is they start their homestead. They, they get their homestead going for a while and, there's not much happening, right? It's not till autumn that the bad stuff begins to happen to our, our young couple. But Walker doesn't forget this incident with the snakes. And he does a lot of praying about, you know, praying to Yig. He starts to get involved in rituals and things and, and basically trying to hedge his bets a little bit. Quote, Sally was very sympathetic about Walker's weakness regarding snakes, but perhaps did more to aggravate than cure the parallel nervousness with which Audrey was acquiring through his incessant praying and prophesizing about the curse of Yig. 
She was uncommonly full of gruesome snake stories and produced a direct, full, strong impression with her acknowledged masterpiece. End quote. Now, this Sally is, is, is like an amber that they're able to talk to, who also knows about the egg mythology. So she's not actually that much comfort to Audrey and Walker. But they do manage to get uh, a harvest of corn out. So they do sort of get their homestead started up and get a home built. All the things that pioneers uh, do. But sometimes he would like uh, Walker that is would go to the Wichita's and it seems to maybe perform rituals or to talk to the elders about this curse. So he's never forgotten this danger of this curse of Yig, especially as autumn is coming, right? It's after the harvest, after there's their first harvest that he really starts to worry. And it seems all the local Indians are also kind of gearing up for like the season of Yig, if you will. Quote, Yig was a great god. He was bad medicine. He did not forget things. In the autumn, his children were hungry and wild, and Yig was hungry and wild too. All the tribes made medicine against Yig when the corn harvest came. They gave him some corn and danced in proper regalia to the sound of whistle, rattle, and drum. They kept the drums pounding to drive Yig away and called down the aid of Tur, whose children's men are, even as the snakes are Yig's children. It was bad that the squab Davis killed the children of Yig, let Davis say the charms many times when the corn harvest comes, Yig is Yig and Yig is a great god. Unquote. So it seems like the Indians seem like know that it's not going to do much good to um, <laughs> to uh, to just kind of do a few rituals to appease Yig. Now the climax of the story comes when Audrey begins to have these dreams about the of Yig. She starts to dream Yig. And these dreams seem to drive her, her mad, eventually. And it peaks in this, this feeling that her house is under attack. Her, you know, her husband's being attacked by, by snakes, right? And she thinks more and more about the curses. The dreams become more and more violent in her mind. But anyways, ultimately, the climax of this is this moment in which it seems her house is under attack by, by the children of Yig. And and she actually thinks she actually gets this image that or, or she experiences the death of her husband um, lying dead. Right. Quote, at the thought of her husband's body lying there in the pitch blackness, a thrill of pure physical horror passed over Audrey. That story of Sally Compton's about the man back in Scott County. He, too, had been bitten by a whole bunch of rattlesnakes. And what had happened to him? The poison had brought the flesh and swelled the whole corpse. And in the end, the bloated thing had burst horribly, burst horribly with a detestable popping sound. Was that what was happening to Walker down there on the rock floor? Instinctively, she began, she felt she had begun to listen for something too terrible even to name to herself. Now she begins, after this realization that maybe her husband was killed by, by Yig, some kind of revenge for the death of her children, she witnesses what she sees as like an anthropoid, essentially kind of like a lizard person, or maybe it's Yig, or maybe it's one of the children of Yig, you know, assault her in her house, and she kills it, right? Quote, everything snapped at once inside Audrey's head, and in a second she had turned from a covering child to a raging mad woman. She knew where the axe was, hung against the wall on those pegs near the lantern, it was within easy reach, and she could find it in the dark. Before she was conscious of anything, further it was in her hands, and she was creeping towards the foot of the bed, towards the monstrous head and soldiers, soldiers' shoulders that every moment groped their way near. Had there been any light, the look on her face would 
not have been pleasant to look at. Take that, and you, and that, and that, and that. She was laughing shrilly now, and her cackles mounted higher as she saw the starlight behind the window was yielding to the dim, prophetic parlor coming, pallor coming down. End quote. So that's the end of the story we get. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot of wonderful details here. I just don't want to um, focus on them all. Basically, she murders her, her husband thinking it's, it's some agent of Yig, right? After he gets bitten by rattlesnakes. And she presumed him to be dead. Um, now, then we return to Dr. McNeil. In fact, this is, there's a couple breaks in this, at least one break in the story. Previous to this, where McNeil is kind of like panic, you know, kind of a little nervous, but tell the story. But anyways, he gets through the story and, you know, we're, we're told that she survived and that she basically killed her, her, her husband, massacred him with this ax. Now, I guess the, the, that kind of the scientific reading of what happened is that he was bitten, he went unconscious, but he survived and he woke up and she took it to be, he was, uh, she, she took him to be an agent of Yig of some sort and she slaughtered him, right, in her madness, right? And that's sort of what Dr. McNeil seems to hold. But there is a whole other fact of the story which, uh, you know, kind of throws a wrench into that and gives us a supernatural twist right towards the end, right? Without this, I mean, of course, we've seen this creature before. We've seen that McNeil's caring for some strange creature and we're led to believe that this is Audrey, right? Audrey comes to believe the curse of Yig that if you kill Yig's children, Yig will turn you into a snake, right? And that's what we sort of saw, right? But that's not quite what happened, right? And there's this wonderful twist at the end of the story in which we're told that it wasn't. The curse of Yig actually worked in an entirely different way than we thought. Quote, and Audrey, wasn't it queer how the curse of Yig seemed to work itself out of her? Sorry, it seemed to work itself out on her. I suppose the impression of hissing snakes had been fairly grown into her. Yes, there were lucid spells at the first, but they got fewer and fewer. Her hair came out white at the roots as it grew and later began to fall out. The skin grew blotchy and when she died. And that's McNeil telling the end of Audrey's life. And this really shocks the narrator because he's like, well, what did I look at? What did I see? I thought that was Audrey. Why did you tell me this story? If it's not Audrey. And he says, well, it was, you know, he, then he says, well, yeah, she died, but there was four children. Um, and this is the only one that lived, right? So these are actually the children of Audrey that were inheritors of the curse of Yig. So anyways, that's the story in a nutshell. As I said, like the story of Audrey and, and Walker is quite well told, I think. It, there's, a, there's a lot of terror there. There's a lot of folklore. Um, and, I, and that's what I really like about the story is just the, the, the sensitivity to how folklore works, how folklore spread, how traditions expand and, and, and interact across cultures. That's a, that's a great element here too. It's, of course, it's, it's in a lot of Lovecraft stories is that you know you have certain traditions that are by their nature kind of international and cosmopolitan right that's kind of what makes them kind of freaky for for lovecraft is they're, they're not culturally defined they move around they're they're floating on these tendrils across the seas and across oceans here it's the frontier though so it's an entirely different context from the atlantic world where lovecraft normally sits 
and observes things. Here it's this Western frontier, but you have that same sort of cultural connections, right? How it's a native tradition, maybe connected to the Mexicans, that the pioneers pick up on and talk about and believe, like Sally, this minor character in the story, but she's really crucial in being a conduit of the story, really passing on the Curse of Yeek story to Audrey, who at first is skeptical of it. Walker, much more of a believer initially. Um, so the whole way folklore is done here, I think it's just really, really wonderful. It's one of my favorite aspects of the story. The The ultimate scare itself is is interesting. I mean, we see it in Shadow Over Innsmouth, this idea of people transforming over time into other beings. Uh, we get a nice really twist here where it's almost more horrific, right? To give birth to monsters. You know, it seems she was changing herself a little bit. Skins grew blotchy, hair falls out. But it's not clear she was becoming a snake. Maybe long-term she would have. Maybe that's what Lovecraft's trying to imply here. But the idea that you give birth to these hideous children who aren't even human, right? Um, and, you know, it's it's great. It's really X-Files-ish in a way. Um, but that's it. I, I think the sensitivity to the history, and I, I think the, the fact that it's set in the, the heart of the American empire at the time, it, it makes the story really great. In fact, he sets it back in time. He sets it at that really frontier era and when white people were beginning to move in large numbers into the West. Um, you know, and really the West is being conquered, right? It's in the 1870s, 1880s that the Native Americans are being displaced, right? Um, so I think it's a great uh, setting point, uh, but we're left with like the remnants of 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 this violation, the violation against the snakes, uh, against Yig, but also the violation against the indigenous traditions that have that have thrived there. Um, I think that's a great aspect of the story. I think there's a lot going on here in this tale about empire. That's that's what makes it really relevant. So I guess that's it. Um, I, I didn't plan to say much more than, than this about the Curse of Yig, um, in part because I'm kind of gearing up to deal with a much longer story called The Mound, which I'll begin to talk about in the next episode. I, I'm pretty sure it will take me at least two episodes to cover everything in The Mound. This, the Mound is a story that's as epic as like the shadow of it out of time or at the mountains of madness in that it describes this alien civilization in great detail. Um, so it's a long story. It's 30,000 words. It's really a, a novel length, uh, almost as long as at the mountains of madness. Uh, I'm not, cause it's a revision though. I'm not going to do the quite the in-depth reading I did with at the mountains of madness, but I will still at least spend a couple episodes on it, I believe. Um, so, I'm looking forward to getting to that. So that will be up next. Um, but in the meantime, if you haven't read The Curse of Yeg, do read it. It's a wonderful story. It's one of my favorite of all the Lovecraft revisions. And I, I think mostly because it just forced Lovecraft to geographically position his stories somewhere else, somewhere, you know, he rarely wrote about. Um, if he, you know, this, he never would have wrote about these themes if, if it hadn't been Celia Bishop coming to him with this idea, right? And, and encouraging him to help her help her put the story down. So it's, I mean, I think Celia Bishop actually deserves some credit for broaching the subject, even though if it's mostly Lovecraft's words, right? You know, if it hadn't been for her initial idea or treatment or whatever she contributed to the story, 
we wouldn't have gotten this this wonderful Lovecraft tale. That's really been, I think, influential in how people have thought about, you know, it's, it's influenced Lovecraft culture uh, sense in a lot of ways. It's certainly, Yig is a common feature in a lot of, like, the games and, you know, other people writing about, you know, in the Lovecraft mythos. It's, he's a major player in, in those other texts that have emerged since Lovecraft's death. But that's going to be it for now. Uh, next episode, we'll talk about the mound. We'll start talking about the mound anyways. Also, uh, a Lovecraft ghost writing, essentially, for Zelia Bishop. So uh, anyways, if you have any thoughts about this story, let me know what they are. Um, but thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Graveyard.